and it's recording. Yay. Dr. James Kaufman, thank you so, so much for taking the time to join me. This is a true honor. I have read your work. I know that it is foundational in our thinking about creativity. And this is an area that I'm so interested in, and I'm thrilled that I get to dig in with you. So just thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Let's talk for a second about how you came into this work. I'm curious because your path is unusual and just studying creativity is unusual. I work very closely with Zorana Pringle, who is wonderful. And I'm working with her through a Pinterest project. And so I, I have gotten some snaps of how people enter this, but I would love to hear your journey of how you entered this. I always wanted to be a creative writer. So high school, I worked as a freelance sports journalist. In college, I was a creative writing major and just obsessed with it. And I ended up being a double major with psychology because my parents are psychologists and they were always interested. Beginning of senior year, I began sending out for applications for MFAs in creative writing. And one of them said something like, every year we graduate 20 MFAs and every year there are 25 jobs in the whole country for MFAs. And I, I don't know if that's true, but I feel like it was supposed to be this rallying cry of, yes, I can do it. And instead it became... I can do something else. And I kind of applied very scatteredly to psychology programs, clinical, social, cognitive, developmental, like everything you're not supposed to do. Just I didn't have a vision or plan. And I ended up getting into work with Bob Sternberg at Yale, which was fantastic. It's the first two years we did stuff related to intelligence. That's what my parents study. And it, it just... It just didn't do it for me. And I was realizing that. Bob was realizing that. And at a certain point before my third year, I decided, well, I could try creativity. So I think Bob also studied that. And so he gave me a reading list. And I spent that summer like locked in my parents' basement with this pile of books. And it was just first non-creative writing stuff that I read that just absolutely enraptured me. It was fascinating. I was reading Mihaly Jixson, Mihaly Teresa Mable, Tom Ward, Howard Gardner, and about, of course, Bob's work. It was just absolutely enthralling. And so for my first master's thesis, I did this terrible, terrible project with cognition. But the next one we did, I did it on this review of creative writing and loved it, never looked back. Would you talk to your parents in the evening about what you were reading? I mean, I'm just imagining you're sort of in this household like finding this passion. When you were reading, were you thinking, you know, there's some space here for me to have a voice? And did you sort of start forming that at that point? What was that like back then? So being very honest, I was reading it and I was just so excited that it wasn't boring. I had spent two years of reading stuff. And again, you know, reading good work. I mean, no way insulting the work. It just wasn't my thing. I think that that is a very common shared experience. And I'm sure as a professor, you have seen that with many people as well. I was lucky. I mean, when I was a teenager, my, my dad would teach me factor analysis using baseball statistics. And I mean, we're still very, very close, both my parents. And so my mom would usually read my writing. My dad would, would teach me stats and we would, we would talk about this stuff. But once I began kind of finding 
it, then I absolutely began discussing with my folks. And it was like having like two bonus colleagues who, who knew were on your side. I was thinking the same thing. That's just such an incredible foundation to be able to start playing with those concepts with two people that know you better than anyone else. That's amazing. When did you start to feel that you had a voice within this field? Like how long did that take? So by the time that I was in my last year, my fifth year, I was in the job market. And I mean, creativity still isn't a popular topic, but back then it really wasn't. And I had... Solid publications, but wasn't finding anything. Like the closest I came was a handwritten note in a form rejection letter. And I ended up at Educational Testing Service, which I was incredibly lucky to get. And it was overall a good experience. Also not my thing, but... Yeah, it reminds me of the intelligence stuff, right? I mean, it's very similar to the intelligence. I was in the Center for New Constructs where the goal was, hey, can we include creativity? And then the answer was kind of, well, no. But... While I was there, I was still having that same feeling, kind of dog paddling and figuring out what am I doing. And I ended up, after about a year and change, realizing, okay, I need to try to get back to academia somehow. And I ended up at Cal State San Bernardino. And it was probably in my first couple of years there that I began feeling I'm actually doing stuff that isn't just me tagging along with somebody else. Exactly. Exactly. You started to sort of feel like, okay... I'm diverging into my own area. Do you remember the earliest work that felt like that for you? Or what was that? It's interesting. I haven't thought about this. So I got very, very lucky at ETS where we were putting in for a grant that we actually got on creative writing and we brought in as a consultant, John Baer. I don't know if you know Baer's work, but he happened to be living nearby in New Jersey and we really hit it off, and he's still a very dear friend. And we began doing this wonderful coffee shop called Fedora that had like the single best desserts. They ended up doing the cake for my wedding, actually. <laughs> so great. He got me really interested in the idea of creativity in different domains. And so we edited a book on creativity across domains. And I was actually at ETS when a lot of that was begun. So in a sense, I guess I was at ETS because that was the moment. Because I was able to draw on a lot of my skills that I used like, as a journalist as well in terms of just finding sources, except finding chapter contributors and finding people to write. I mean, some were obvious, but then finding people who were, I mean, well, less obvious. You know, So, for example, I mean, David Cropley is now a top creativity researcher. So he'd written a little bit about creativity back then with his dad, Arthur, who was also legend brilliant researcher and David was an engineer. And so I wrote to him like, well, can you write about engineering creativity? And it turned out it was amazing after. And so things like that, finding interesting, good people to do stuff where, you know, in some cases it was old hat and in other cases it was really finding that collection. And then as we were finishing up, we wrote a typical last chapter. And then I kept thinking about the chapters, and that was the genesis of what would become what's called the amusement park theory, which is this kind of way of looking at domains where there's different layers of things that are common and then things that are very, very specific. So that whole experience, the book, and then that theory, like that was me and John. It sounds like it opened up all of these different pathways for you. That's what I'm hearing when you describe that work. Yeah. And it just kept, like, if I think that of those first 
four or five years at Cal State, which was also just a really good place for somebody starting out. I'd already gotten to know Jonathan Plucker. I met Ron Baghetto at a conference and we just clicked. And I mean, it really was in those five years, six years, I met a lot of folks who are still collaborators and dear friends today. It was an exciting time for creativity. I mean, it's, it's still an exciting time, but it's, it's in a different way. Yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about how things have changed within the field over? I mean, I'm sure there's so much to say, but just in a sort of brush strokes. When I was first starting out, you had Creativity Research Journal and you had Journal of Creative Behavior, but JCB Web was not in a strong moment then. It would recover and is now a great journal. And so there were only a few homes for creativity work. Now, you have psychology of aesthetics, creativity, and arts, you have thinking skills and creativity. You still have creativity research journal and journal of creative behavior, along with so many others that are now much more creativity friendly or included. And you know, things like PACA and JCB and TRJ, like they now have really good impact factors. I mean, I remember when the impact factor was like you know 1.08, and now it's 4.2, and like that's a difference. And with that has come, you know, emphasis on, you know better stats, more replications, which I, mean, I think it's a double-edged sword, to be honest. I feel like we're not always as open to creative work on creativity. I was wondering about that. I was wondering how much space there is for, I don't know, just completely creative thinking in the field. Not that there was huge space before, but what I most love doing is theories. And honestly, I think it was a little easier to get theories published back in the day. Some of it is that there's so many creativity theories now. Conversely, in terms of also just some kind of amazing stuff, there are so many more people who are studying creativity. I know, I would imagine. I mean, if, to me, it feels like it's becoming very mainstream now, just as a, as a spectator. <laughs> I will call it mainstream when I regularly see it listed as we're looking for a creativity researcher, the same way I see it in topics. But the young folks, so to speak, are so good. They have such training. They have such breadth of knowledge. I mean, if I think about like when I was starting out, I didn't know anything about stats or methods. And I don't mean the highfalutin level. I mean anything. The quality of work being done, the folks who are the assistant, almost associate or sometimes, those folks right now are just doing such good work. There's become more communication between areas. I mean, I would love to see more, but... Psychology and business, psychology and education, there's more dialogue. It was very common to say 10 years ago, so many articles would say, well, nobody agrees on the definition of creativity or amazement and why aren't people studying this type of stuff? Whereas now, that's just less common. People, regardless of the field, know, yeah, there is this area of creativity and people are studying it. And that's exciting. Do you feel like, I mean, I work in emotional well-being and that is a field that is similarly sort of in your 10 years ago zone. Do you feel that there is convergence on basic definitions that has happened? Like you're beyond that at this stage? Largely, yeah. I feel like the basic standard definition of original and task appropriate, I mean, it's a valid criticism to argue that that doesn't eliminate a whole lot. And certainly that definition was around 70 years ago. But I feel like the refinements on it, the plucker, baguetto, and Dow honing in on it, you know, the idea of adding in these dimensions and, well, okay, here's what we mean in the situation. 
I feel like there's been a lot of convergence in general on a lot of stuff. Like when I was first starting out, you had domain specific, domain general, and this. And now people have broadly accepted, well, yes, there are general components, there are domain specific components, and it's less likely to be an argument. Knowing that there was a generation before you and probably before that, but you were still early within this field, do you ever feel like, I wish I had been able to start now when things were a little more progressed or do you appreciate that you never. never? Okay. Never, never, never. I love that. I mean, some of it was luck, but I've been able to study creativity and largely nothing but creativity or whatever I wanted to. And even today, most creativity researchers are doing creativity and blank. So creativity and cognitive psychology, education, teacher education, and in many, they also like that stuff. But I've been able to find two good academic jobs, Cal State and UConn. And I also like being in the position where I get to enjoy all the kind of exciting stuff and try to work with as many interesting people as possible. I mean, it was hard to get a job when I was trying to get a job. It just feels so hard to find an academic job right now that the emphasis on grants when it's still hard to get grants and creativity. I actually often think that I'm very okay not starting. That makes so much sense to me. I also feel like... I have a lot of experience in my field and I'm thankful to be at the stage where I have a lot of experience in my field. There is something very reassuring about that. (laughs) I'm not sure I'll feel that way in 10 or 15 years when I'm totally obsolete and I'm the one spouting the old and dated way. We don't do that anymore. Go for that way then. But like right now where I still feel relevant enough. (laughs) I doubt you'll ever be obsolete. I think you'll always be the keeper of insight. Let's talk a little bit about mental health and creativity, which you've written about, you've talked about extensively. When did you first start that thread in your work? Graduate school, actually, but totally by accident. So my first big creativity thing was on creative writers, and I wanted to do something empirical. And I was fascinated by Dean Simonson's stuff on story metric stuff. Still am. I mean, I think it's really interesting approach. And I was in this strand bookstore and there was this book like this big on, you know, a 20th century guide to English writers. And I decided I'm going to enter everything I can think of that I can glean from this, these little biographies. And that was the beginning of what would become the Sylvia Plath effect, the um, idea that eminent female poets are more likely to show signs of mental illness compared to other eminent writers and other eminent women. And it's not that I think that was necessarily a bad study. I don't see its value. For this, the Sylvia Plath effect study and work. Okay. And how has that changed? It went viral. And all of a sudden I had to see, oh, this is what it actually is being used for or interpreted as. I I can imagine that. I mean, when you look up your bio, it's always, you know, when people write about you, it's one of the first things that comes up. (laughs) And I mean, so much was my fault. I mean, the reason why I took off is that Cal State had hired a public relations person and they picked like five or six professors that they thought might, you know, and 
And then when journalists were talking to me, I was a little, a little too glib. Some of the quotes you can find from back then are a little too glib. I mean, it's an interesting topic, but I'm not sure it does anything positive. Mm, almost like, what do we learn from this? And what is the point of this? Where are we going with this? I use a sh- mental shorthand called Wagasa, where back in the 60s, the Wild Animal Park in San Diego had a contest to name their monorail. And they picked Wagasa. And up until about 10 years ago, it was still called the Wagasa monorail. And if you ask, what does that stand for? They would say it's the world's greatest animal safari anywhere. And that was utter nonsense. They were having a meeting to determine it, and somebody wrote Wagasa on the board. And it was an acronym, one they all knew, which was who gives a anyway. Wow. Doesn't matter. That's hilarious. And so much research is kind of Wagasa. Mm. I'm much more interested in what can be done. Yeah. And there are so many studies that are still being done on creativity, mental illness. I mean, I'm not trying to dismiss them because then most have much better methods than I ever used. I just feel like we always kind of find the same thing, which is you know, a, a slight relationship and it'll depend, well, how are we measuring it in this, this, this. Mm-hmm. Whereas the stuff that looks at creativity and positive mental health, I find much more interesting. That is super interesting to me because of working at Pinterest. I don't know how much you know about it, but it's a, a company that its mission is around inspiration. So to bring people the inspiration to live a life they love. And so we have had a PhD researcher working on inspiration work for two years, which has been super interesting. It's just starting to come to fruition. And there are things to be learned through inspiration and the connection of creativity and positive psychology on top of that is fascinating to me. It's the next step that this researcher will be exploring for us, but I want to learn everything I can about that area, both for my work at Pinterest, but also for myself and how I think about, I mean, I came to creativity a bit later in life because I, like many people, when I was young, I studied literature. I wanted also to be a writer. I then ended up in book publishing and started working with some incredible writers, Nobel Prize winning writers. And it stopped me from writing. I was just in awe of them, their work, and I was never going to be that. I mean, I I really was not going to be that. So unfortunately, I just jumped off altogether And then it took a really long time and a diagnosis of generalized anxiety disorder at age 40 to start writing. I just suddenly started to have things to say and wanted to learn and started writing and wrote a book that came out two years ago about anxiety and overthinking. But I'm just really now starting to heal that lifelong relationship I had with creativity And I don't want anyone else to go through that. I don't want anyone else to just dampen and shut down their creativity for 30 years or 20 years. We're not that different. I mean, that's where Pro-C came from. I remember as an undergraduate, I mean, yes, some of it was the MFA thing, but some of it was realizing I wasn't good enough. I was good. And it's funny because a lot of these stories have bad mentors. And I have wonderful mentors. I had a mentor that was so incredible that he said, I'm not going to write you a recommendation for 
graduate school in this field because this is not a good field to be in. And I do not like the life of a professor. It is not a great life. This was at Georgetown. He's incredible. He got in touch with me recently. I was so happy. He actually ended up leaving, unsurprisingly. He went down a different path, but that was super interesting in law and sort of standing up for children within the legal system and also ended up teaching law. But he basically said, I'm not going to support you doing this because I think you have other things to do. Oh, I was the one who decided I wasn't going to. And I kept writing in grad school and I returned a little bit to it where I, I'd done a musical years and years ago. And about five, seven years ago, my composer had submitted to a festival, it got accepted. And so we revised it and wrote songs and cut and I adapted it kind of into like a, a non-musical play and then just kind of stopped. And the door is open, you know, but so much of those needs, I get met through my other... That's what I was thinking. I mean, you're already writing all the time now. You have not left the world of writing. So right now I'm, I'm writing a book called The Creativity Advantage for Cambridge. I'm about halfway done. And it's in my voice, the same way like Creativity 101 was in my voice, in a way that articles generally aren't in my voice. And if I think, well, when I would write plays, you know, I would find interesting anecdotes or stories and weave them in and try to make a point and metaphors. I'm doing the same stuff. It's just writing about creativity as the base instead of whatever plot there'd be. And by the way, that was my same journey because I didn't have my subject until I was handed anxiety. <laughs> I just didn't know. I mean, and then when it was given to me, it was like all happened at once. And that moment I realized, wow, there's so much here. It's fascinating an infinite feeling. And I'm very curious about it. I felt extremely energized and curious about this field, which is also why I was asking about your early experiences of sort of getting turned on to the subject. Cause I think that moment of like realizing I have infinite curiosity about this and I have both so much to learn and give. It's very interesting. It's funny because it's always been creativity, but it's the and blank that's changed. Like, so right now the big thing is meaning. Because like with creativity and positive health, like the relationship between creativity and happiness, creativity and positive well-being is, is actually kind of small, which makes it in some ways more interesting because it's nuanced. It's not, oh, if you're creative, then right. yeah. You know I mean, right. so, Wonderful. So like in, in the book I'm working on, I kind of divided into five positive outcomes. And I, I don't know if these are the five, you know, but you know, this element of insight, self-insight, curiosity, the element of healing, looking at community. Jeff Smith has done stuff on the museum effect and how when you're observing and taking an art with other people, you feel this connection and there's some stuff on tolerance and equity and creativity that's just been fascinating. And I want to see more work on it. I think that is such an exciting, interesting area. There's joy, which is in some ways the most straightforward. And then legacy, then the real meaning part mm. of leaving something and whether that's, you know, of course it could be, you know, you become big C, great, but more likely, it's just the little things. It's, I mean, I have paintings by my grandmother, you know, for other, other people have recipe books. You know, it, it's that thing that you leave for your kids, your family, your friends, the community. You know, I mean, that's your thing. So I find it interesting. Absolutely. 
do you have shoulds around your creativity? I mean, do you think, oh, I should be working on that musical? Is that still there? (laughs) It was for a little bit. When I finished the play version of it, that was when I realized if I write something with creativity, it may take a bit. It's going to get published before me. Not only is that not guaranteed, it's not likely. And it almost became when I would decide I'm going to spend this day revising my play or whatever, that became the should. Like, you should be doing something that people will actually uh, read. Or that stupid. makes sense. Yeah. When I was first starting off in playwriting, it was early days of the internet. And so I had a website and I put up plays and they were done all the time. Now everybody has a website with their plays. And, and I don't want to say it's harder. I would have to mentally allocate, okay, I've done this play and now I'm going to, it's not like, oh, I'm done and I'm done. It's I'm now going to either try to get a production on myself or be willing to submit 10,000 times to this. It's the same reason why if I had to publish my own books, dear Lord, you know, I mean, and be like cranking whatever the mini or I know, or <laughs> I mean, I... Letterpress. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of regret, but not a huge amount. I mean, I got to see my stuff a lot. I got to see my musical put on in New York and my folks flew out from California, as did my sister. And, you know, getting to watch that with them and my wife. And there's a moment where a character has a book on stage and I had it be a book by my dad. And, you know, and like he saw it. It was like, that's such a nice, good memory. And theater is in such a weird time right now. Mm -hmm. And actually the other thing, I forgot. So... When I was in grad school, I discovered a musical called The Fix, which became like one of my favorite shows of all time. I almost wore out the CD. And through a variety of circumstances, I'm working on a book about creativity for musical theater folks with the composer of The Fix. And I I swear it was probably six months before I like got over the fact. That's amazing. I mean, really. And this is an Olivier nominated, amazing composer who's also one of the nicest people in the world. So we're, we're closing in, but we have two books planned. Because originally it was one, and we realized it was really two. Almost done with the first one. Half a chapter and then a conclusion. And of course, part of me is nervous because we're trying to find agents. And when I was in high school, my dad and I did a book on baseball. And it took a long time for us to get it published. And it, like, my dad wasn't used to it because my dad is much, much better known than I am in psychology. And I've been counter that a little bit with this theater book and that I think it's one of the best things I've been a part of. And I know people in publishing, but not in the theater world or in the mainstream world. And then we began starting out right as COVID was shutting down. Mm. Not only were writing, but trying to work on getting agents and people were like, hey, this is good, but not a good time to be writing about theater. It makes me wonder, one thing I've been noticing about publishing is that people have taken their ideas and their written texts and created them in different formats. Obviously podcast is one of them where, you know, a series of conversations leads to the building of an audience who's interested leads to eventually the book with this one. It also makes me wonder if there, I mean, theater is hard as you say, and we are in COVID. So, but if there is a way to do something that is interactive, I don't know. It's just interesting. There's a Facebook group that Dana started a while ago for creativity and people into entrepreneurship. And, and it's growing and we're trying to figure out a way of just like 
again, interacting with folks and we're talking about our website and stuff. And it's, I wish it was more intuitive for me. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm a writer. That's, but that is the, I mean, I work with a lot of different people in the world of technology. I love working with designers, especially and having the core ideas. For example, I'm working on an app project right now with Mark Brackett. That's how I met Zorana through Pinterest, connected to Pinterest. And it's so crucial to have someone bring this world of work and research to the table. And that's not an area that often connects, but it should be connecting more is the world of technology. And I think it will in the future. I think all of the amazing you know, research and ideas. And I met you through someone who has a startup on creativity. So obviously you are connected. It's funny because there's so many possible projects to work on. I've worked on so many things, you know, everything from apps to movies. It says, I wish I knew what was, I mean, I guess everybody, what was the determining factor? Just, there's been so many things that I've worked on. I, I, I thought, you know, if we'd gotten lucky with so many good ideas and, you know, and you just, you keep plugging away and find good people. What's the most important thing to you in terms of getting your work out? Like what kind of impact would you dream of having in people's lives with your work on creativity? It's funny. When I was a kid, I wanted to be famous. I wanted to do this. And I've lost that, which is good, frankly, with the wrong reasons. It still slightly shocks me whenever I meet somebody who knows my work well, who isn't like another creativity researcher. It's very weird to me. It's great. Like, I'll do a paper I'm excited about, it'll come out. And I just kind of assume it's just, okay. Let's you know, like, I don't think of it having a life beyond whoever I might tell about it or show about it. I love the idea of having an impact in the field. I would love to have an impact. It's one of the reasons why I've gotten so excited about the meaning-related stuff. I've never been quite as excited about all this stuff on how to improve creativity. I mean, I think it's important. I'm very glad we'll do it. I just don't. I mean, it's sort of work output, productivity mentality, but the meaning stuff, the meaning work and, you know, working in emotional well-being, we ask these questions, how do we define it? And meaning is one of the ways that we work to define it. That is, I think, something that we really need to remind people of, like showing them paths to get there. That is underexplored. Just looking at the positive outcomes of creativity is oddly understudied. Where, I mean, of course, people study it, but there's so much on improving creativity or measuring it. And again, it's important that I do that, that looking at, okay, well, why creativity? And then of what's there, it's so often grades and, and work output. And it, that's important. Like I always worry. Yes, of course, those things are very important. Yeah. But I think back to young me giving up on creative writing. And the focus on achievement, which again, I, I intuitively also take, but the idea that there's so much stuff that many see, you know, the personal creativity or little C, you know, it still has the benefits. Yeah. You know, to be this, to still have the benefits, that's important. And that's what I want to understand more and study more. And I mean, I'm very slowly, too slowly planning a number of different types of studies just to start do more empirical stuff on how creativity can help different aspects of meaning or related positive outcomes that aren't quite as point A to point B. Yes. I mean, I love that. I think that's really important work. I'm excited that you're sort of embarking in that direction. 
Dr. Kaufman, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I've loved talking to you. And I love the idea that more people might get to hear this and share some of these, I don't know, journeys and think about some of the things we talked about. It makes me really happy. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. 